In the 2012 poll conducted by the BFI, The Passion of Joan of Arc was elected as one of the 10 greatest achievements in film history. While its importance is irrefutable, it is nonetheless a very strange film. Strange because, made in 1928, it hails from the distant days when the art form was still in its infancy. When the pioneering talents of the Lumiere brothers, Alice Guy Blachet, Georges Méliès, Edwin S. Porter, D.W. Griffith, F.W. Murnau and Sergei Eisenstein were all trying and testing how film works. From other arts, cinema soon incorporated genres to help tell stories. Romances, melodramas, horrors, adventures and comedies. But no matter what the genre, all stories need vocabulary and grammar. The vocabulary, once so rudimentary, was rapidly increasing to broaden a storyteller's ability to portray emotion, convey thought and suggest metaphor. Simultaneously, a grammar was being forged to ensure cinema could articulate its own space and time. As the vocabulary and grammar developed, there emerged distinctive styles and movements, vernaculars if you will, realism, naturalism, illusionism, romanticism, German expressionism, surrealism and Soviet montage. And that is what makes The Passion of Joan of Arc so strange. Under the direction of Carl Theodore Dreyer, this historical drama is a fusion of several styles. In the hands of someone less talented, they would have separated like oil and water. But somehow, Dreyer blended them to create one of the greatest psychological portraits art has ever seen. There are many other depictions of the young heroine, but none of them come near what Dreyer achieved. For comparison, here, from 1958, is Otto Preminger's St. Joan, starring Jan Seberg. I have said again and again that I will tell you all that concerns this trial. But God does not allow the whole truth to be told. How do you know that, woman? You do not understand it when I tell you. Do you defy this court of holy and learned men? Learned, perhaps. But it is an old saying that he who tells too much truth is sure to be hanged. For Dreyer's realism, we can see that on the actors' faces. Led by René Jean Falconetti as the martyred saint, neither she nor any of the cast wore any makeup. Adding to that, in the penultimate scene, Falconetti famously had her hair completely shorn. So, when she was led out to the stake to be burned, the actress really had been subjected to appalling humiliation. In 1923, George Bernard Shaw wrote St. Joan, presenting her as a feminist heroine. Here is a 1967 television adaptation directed by George Schaefer and starring Geneviève Boujol. You look very pale today, are you not well? Thank you kindly. I'm well enough. But the bishop sent me some carp. It made me ill. I'm sorry, I told them to see that it was fresh. You meant to be good to me, I know. But it's a fish that does not agree with me. The English thought you were trying to poison me. What? No! They are determined that I shall be burnt as a witch. They sent their doctor to cure me, but he was forbidden to bleed me because the silly people believe that a witch's witcher relieves her if she's bled. For illusionism, Dreyer got Hermann Varm and Jan Hugo to design and construct an enormous set based on the Rouen castle initially built in the 12th century. At the time, the set was one of the most expensive constructions ever committed to celluloid, all with the aim of creating the illusion that the film was, in fact, made on the historical site. 
but Dreyer then went in a surprising, and for the producers, a bewildering direction. He decided to shoot the vast majority of the film in close-up, thereby all but rendering pointless the enormous expenses lavished on the sets. However, in going in for the close-ups, Dreyer was borrowing from German Expressionism. He and cinematographer Rudolf Matte went for high-contrast lighting to exaggerate the faces of the entire cast. Shaw was not the only playwright to tackle the saint's life. In 1946, American dramatist Maxwell Anderson used blank verse for Joan of Lorraine, and two years later, Orkeo Pictures released a film version under the more familiar title of Joan of Arc. The studio spent over four and a half million dollars on the prestigious production, and while their decision was rewarded with seven Oscar nominations, including Best Production Design in Colour and winning for Best Cinematography in Colour, they failed to deglamorize Ingrid Bergman. The Pope is in Rome. We cannot go so far. You must submit to us. If you do not, we shall hand you over to the executioner now. Submit to God and our Holy Father, the Pope. You must submit to us or die! Which brings me back to the cinematography. The close-ups in Matte's high-contrast lighting showed everything, warts and all. Next, by frequently placing the camera low down, we look up at Joan's interrogators, and the extreme angle and harsh lighting turns the clergy into monsters. But for Joan, the camera is frequently placed above her, and with the light spread evenly across her upturned face, she is all but sanctified. And finally, when Joan is taken to the torture chamber, Dreyer drew on Soviet montage to suggest the agonies to which Joan would be subjected. While the close-up had long since become a standard feature in film's dictionary, the earliest surviving example being Grandma's Reading Glass, made by G.A. Smith in 1901, Dreyer used the close-up to describe and define a whole host of emotions and thoughts. While Falconetti's performance is justifiably regarded as one of the greatest ever put on film, we do not see the story through Joan's eyes. Rather, we read it on her face. As she slips from hope to torment, into agony and down into dread, all of Joan's emotions are on full display for us to see. Her face becomes a map with which we can navigate her spiritual struggle and physical obliteration. Because what is a map other than a means by which we can find a route through unfamiliar terrain? Joan's forehead, her eyes, her cheeks and mouth give us a view of a faith warped by zealotry and misogyny. A time when scripture succumbed to deep-seated superstition and scepticism. But it's not just Joan's face that tells us this. Dreyer depicts the clergy as a set of gargoyles, laughing, mocking, ridiculing and condemning Joan for a devotion they themselves claim to have, but largely because she is a woman, doubt that she can possess. In 1999, Luc Besson mounted an epic production that cost so much, the financing had to be split between France's Gaumont Studios and Hollywood's Columbia Pictures. With the supporting cast of John Malkovich, Faye Dunaway and Dustin Hoffman, The Messenger was an utterly misconceived project that starred Besson's then-wife 
Mila Jovovich. Jan, we once again admonish, beg, and exhort you to cast out and recant your erroneous beliefs by signing this recantation. Please. If the church wants me to say that my visions are evil, then I do not believe in this church. Earlier, I said that we don't so much see the film through Joan's eyes as we do read it on her face. That is partially because Dreyer Orbit dispenses with the sort of film grammar that had been practiced for decades. That is, the spatial relationships between characters. One way of arranging that is through matching eyelines. You position one character on the right side of the frame and have them look left, and the reverse shot has the other person, camera left, looking right. Through that grammatical construction, their eyes appear to meet. But the groundwork for that meeting of the eyes is set up by an establishing shot, which gives us another map, the space, the room, the arena they inhabit. But Dreyer does not do that. Frequently, he will cut from Joan's face to the faces of the clergy, but the eyelines do not match. However, this incorrect grammar is not impossible to understand. Rather, it brings us a deeper understanding. The unusual breaking up of that space is another way Dreyer gets us to connect with Joan's confusion and suffering. Outside of Dreyer's film, by far the best cinematic rendition of Joan's story is from 1962, when Robert Bresson made The Trial of Joan of Arc. As usual, using non-actors, Bresson reinforced his ascetic approach by making sure the dialogue was a direct transcript of the trial. Dreyer also used the transcripts, but Bresson's approach is much more transcendental. The film opens on a close-up of a book, with the intertitles declaring what follows as a direct account of Joan's final days. Then, Dreyer gives us a tracking shot along a room inside the castle, where the priests and armed soldiers await the commencement of the trial. The camera is tracking from left to right, and because Dreyer has the priests sitting in the foreground, looking in the same direction, our expectation is that as we move down the room, our movement will be met by Joan as she is brought in for interrogation. But no. Dreyer abruptly cuts to a dolly shot, quickly tracking in towards the Chief Inquisitor. He stands, reading aloud from a parchment. Another cut shows us Joan and Longshot, already in the room. We see the Inquisitor as he continues to read out the charges, and Dreyer cuts to an intense close-up of our young heroine. From that moment, and for the next 40 minutes, we are rarely any further than a few feet from someone's face. And the legacy of that can be seen in many films. Ingmar Bergman's Persona, Shame and Cries and Whispers, to name but three. As well as crucial sequences in these films. There are 12 people in here concentrating on this case. 11 of us didn't think of it either. Well, what about the district attorney? You think he'd pull a trick like that? Have a testify without her glasses? Do you ever see a woman who had to wear glasses and didn't want to because she thinks they spoil her looks? Okay, she had marks on her nose. 
I'm giving you that. In quite a hurry. Yes. I didn't intend to sleep so long. I almost had an accident last night from sleepiness, so I decided to pull over. You slept here all night? Yes. As I said, I couldn't keep my eyes open. There are plenty of motels in this area. You should have... I mean, just to be safe. You're very frank, Larry. I think it would be quite something to know you in private life. Quid pro quo, Doc. The film's producers commissioned a score by French composers Léo Pouget and Victor Alix, but their work left Dreyer deeply unhappy. Several composers have tackled it since, but by far the best I have heard is on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray edition, written by Richard Einhorn. There is an often repeated story about John Ford filming one of his many westerns out in Monument Valley. Bad weather had been playing havoc with the schedule and a young executive was pressing Ford demanding to know what he was going to film that day. Ford replied, the most interesting and exciting thing in the whole world, the human face. Now think of the first shot of Ray McAnally in The Mission, the final shot of Timothée Chalamet in Call Me By Your Name and Anna Karina in the middle of Vivre Sa Vie. There, Jean-Luc Godard had Nana go to the cinema to see The Passion of Joan of Arc. Karina wept in response. Clearly, the close-up can serve as the audience's emotional mirror, bringing us into such intimate proximity that even the tiniest flicker in the eyes or a quiver on the lips reveals the character's inner world. As newborn babies, the human face may not be the first thing we see, but is most likely the thing we see most often. The importance of what we see is borne out by the fact that adults always use exaggerated facial expressions, which we, as infants, then learn to mimic. So, in a way, the cinema screen serves a similar function. Perhaps the film that most closely shows the influence and lessons of Dreyer's masterpiece is Laszlo Nemesis' Oscar-winning Son of Soul. Working with cinematographer Matthias Edeli, the visual scheme is to keep the camera close in the face of Soul, played by Geza Roig. For a lot of the film, that is all we see, and all we see in Soul's face is fatigue, and not just physical. The more Nemes keeps the camera close, the more we see that Soul is emotionally and spiritually fatigued, to the point that he looks forsaken. In every sense. He fears God has abandoned him. He senses the world has turned its back on him. And he knows that soon, the engines of the Holocaust will consume him. But a close-up serves another purpose. Keeping the camera so close to Saul, Nemes did not have to painstakingly recreate the conditions of the death camps. He does that through sound. By hearing, but not seeing, we imagine the rest. By keeping the camera so close on Falconetti's face, Dreyer restricted our view of the court, and so compelled us to participate all the more in the story. Here is Nemes in 2015 on The Charlie Rose Show. My film never shows the horror in an open way. It's always very restricted to the main character. It's very narrow, narrow in its focus. It, it, it leaves uh, everything to the, mostly everything to the imagination of the viewer. 
relies on the viewer because now the viewer has to go through the journey of this film and it becomes personal because the, the, the imagination is at work. Considering why Joan was put on trial in the first place, it is ironic that when Dreyer's film was released in 1928, it came in for severe criticism from the Catholic Church, as well as heavy censorship in France. But an even more ironic fate seemed to have befallen the film when the following year, the original cut was feared lost in a fire. But miracles do happen, and in 1981, a near-pristine copy was found in a janitor's cupboard in a Norwegian hospital. Now fully revived and rightly revered, the passion of Joan of Arc is just as avant-garde, revelatory and instructive as it was over 90 years ago.